So we'll be in Ruth for the next four weeks looking at this wonderful story, whether you've read, read it, um, heard it preached, or whatever, or maybe you've never heard about it, heard it ever before. We'll be in this book for the next four weeks looking at um, just its beautiful message to us of hope of God with us, uh, even though uh, sometimes it doesn't seem like he is, um, and seeing him working his big picture out, his big plan of redemption uh, in front of us um, when life sometimes seems to be crumbling down around us. So that's what we'll be doing for the next four weeks, and then we'll weave in some psalms throughout the summer until we get to our fall series. So just a little bit about where we're going. So if you, again, have a Bible, if you have yours open to the book of Ruth, I'm just going to be reading verses 11 to 18, although this, uh, this message is, is, is going to look at all of chapter 1. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 11 to 18. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, may, that, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for our time this morning to worship you and your invitation to be in your presence. And so now as we read your word and as we hear it proclaimed, we pray that your spirit would go out that you would teach us, Lord, that you would help us to understand and to see Jesus clearly, um, how he is the answer uh, to um, all that we are looking for in this world. Would you help us to do that this time? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, shortly after I graduated college, hold on, I need to get my timer out. Just realized I'm getting a little cocky these days, aren't I? Um, shortly after I graduated college, my dad invited me to go on this fishing trip with uh, some of his friends. And uh, this was, the plan was just to go down and, and fish off the tip of Florida. And we were, were to get in this boat and fish and then dock somewhere um, and then get up the next morning and fish again. And that would be the trip. Uh, the the interesting point here was what dock up meant at this point, because uh, the captain going out into sea knew of this place that was out there, that if you didn't know it was there, you, you, wouldn't, you would never find it, because it's basically where the seafloor goes from about 400 feet to about 30 feet. And what's unique about this spot is, is if you know where it is, is uh, fishermen and, and people who travel those waters know that there's an anchor plate on the ground, seafloor, on the seafloor ground there, that you can essentially bring your boat up to and bring a rope and tie a rope if you swim down to the anchor hold and anchor your boat essentially in the middle of the ocean because for whatever reason, the seafloor comes up to about 30 feet there. And so this is where we, we, where we um, were going for the night. The only problem is, is that someone had to swim down, right, and connect that line. And when you're 22 on a boat with a bunch of 50 and 60-year-olds, that becomes your job. The problem wasn't hooking the boat up, though, that evening. Um, it was actually unhooking the boat the next morning, and here's why, Barracuda. 
And if you know anything about barracuda, they're a nasty fish. Uh, actually, that summer, it was in the paper that one, one flew out of the water and, and gnarled on somebody's arm on a boat because they were uh, you know, attracted to the flickering of their jewelry or something. And so I have this in my mind, of course, as I'm, I'm being told, as I put on my fins at 7 in the morning to get in the water and swim down and unhook this boat, beware of the barracuda who like to hang out under boats. And I'm being told all this by the captain, who literally, as I jump in, says, be careful, they're probably under there. <laughs> and so, I, you know, what do you do in that moment? And, and, and as, I, as I hit the water, and, as I, and I'm under the water, I got the mask on and everything, I turn around, and sure enough, there are five monsters, you know, just sitting under there like logs, teeth up, staring at me. It's seven in the morning, is this breakfast, right? And so I kind of come up. Just to sort of make sure everything's okay, tell the captain, yeah, there's, there's five there. In which my dad just looks at me and says, well, you better hurry up. <laughs> Sweet. Well, for the next however long I was in that water, which seemed like an eternity, uh, the presence of those barracuda under that boat, to put it mildly, ruled me, right? I mean, I've, I've never swum so fast in my life. Um, I was always aware of where they were, uh, as much as they were probably aware of where, of where I was. I could see them at all times. I never took my eyes off of them. Even in that last moment, which was actually the worst, because like once you get down there and hook that line, you've got to come back to the boat, which is back to where they are. And then you've got to make that decision. When are you going to just kind of move to the back of that boat and get on that ladder and hope that they don't just sort of take your foot off? Um, needless to say, I survived, obviously, and I got the boat unhooked that morning. All thanks to my dad's wonderful advice of you better hurry up. As humans, we are people who are naturally ruled by our circumstances. And sometimes when you are in the middle of the ocean like that, that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to be aware of that. But for many of us, it is our circumstances that win the day and tell us what is true about our lives. And the problem with this is that as Christians, we are told this isn't how we are supposed to live. We are told that our circumstances are not to rule us, nor are they an accurate indicator of what is really true. Because for for the Christian... We are called to trust God in spite of our circumstances, in spite of what is going on around us or happening to us in that very moment, i.e. barracudas underneath the ship. But my question for this morning as we kind of move a little further with this is what happens to us as Christians when our circumstances are such that we just can't see God working anywhere in our lives? As long as I could see where those barracudas were, I was actually okay. Right? As horrifying as that might be, as long as I knew that they were there, as long as I could see them, as long as their presence was with me, so to speak, as I went down to unhook that line because I, I could see them and they could see me, as long as I knew that, I was fine. But what happens to us as Christians when our circumstances are such that we just can't see anymore? We can't see what God is actually doing in our lives. It is one thing to trust God when you do sense his presence and see him at work around you. But what happens when you don't? What happens when life's circumstances become so overwhelming that, to you that your circumstances are all that you see? And though others tell you, hey, God is at work in your life or God is with you, 
You just can't see it. The question for us this morning is in those moments, do we believe God is truly at work in our lives, even when we can see it, but certainly even when we cannot? And maybe even certainly when we can't even sense his presence anymore because of what is going on around us. As one pastor puts it, we are easily ruled by our circumstances instead of being ruled by the Lord of our circumstances. And what scripture testifies and shows us over and over is that God is at work in your life and he is with us even when you can't see it. And that promise comes through so clear, so clear in the book of Ruth chapter 1. As we look this morning at the challenge and the dilemma and the resolution we often face in trusting God in tough circumstances. We're going to take those three points as acts in this first chapter because this first chapter really sets the tone for the rest of the book. If you read the book, uh, it starts out, it's, it's, it's tough, it's hard. But if you know where this book ends, right, you know that it ends in fullness. But in order to get to the fullness, we have to begin with the emptiness that we experience here in chapter 1. And so let's start there. Act 1, the challenge we all face in trusting God, verses 1 to 5. And the challenge that we all face in trusting God is that it is hard to trust him when life falls apart, when our circumstances tell us that God is not active in our lives. In the first five verses of this book, we are confronted with everything that we fear will happen to us in our lives. It is a very tragic story, a story of emptiness and hardship. If we were to attach a metaphor to chapter 1, it would be the word famine. Because famine is the picture of emptiness, death, and loss, and hardship. And it is so crucial that we set the stage for the book in this way so that we will understand the book's ending and the joy and the blessing that it leaves us with. The book book of Ruth truly is a story of famine to fullness, which is this series' tag. But to understand the fullness in the end, we have to start here at the famine in the beginning. And verse 1 sets the backdrop for our story, which reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Whether you are familiar with the book of Judges or not, that was a period in the, book of, that was a period in the time of Israel uh, that was utter chaos. Um, some of the worst things are happening if you read through this book. And as you read through this book, you probably find yourself asking the question, why is this even in the Bible? There are very few redeeming moments in the book of Judges, and that is on purpose because the book of Judges is a snapshot of what life looks like when God's people abandon him, when they, when, when, when they decide to live life according to what is right in their own eyes. It is there to warn us, And to show us the depravity of of mankind. But this is the context of this little story that we read about in the book of Ruth. Verse 1, we are told that there is a famine in Bethlehem. Which ironically, the word Bethlehem means house of bread or land of bread. Famine and faithfulness in this time for Israel are connected For there to be famine in Bethlehem in the days of the judges means that Israel has not been, what, faithful. What would end the famine then would be a return or repentance back to covenantal faithfulness to this God. Because of this famine, a man in Bethlehem named Elimelech, a Jewish man, 
takes his family or decides to take his family and move to Moab and search for food we are to assume. We, uh, we have to see that this is somewhat of a tough decision for Elimelech. Maybe it's a either we stay and die in Bethlehem or we decide to venture out just to find food. Maybe it's just that we'll leave here for a little bit because we've got to eat. And when things get better, we'll come back. There is so much we want to know about what is going on here in these first few verses that the author does not tell us. And that's because the author isn't as concerned with those details as he is other things. For by the time we get to verse 3, we are told that Elimelech, Nahomi's husband, has died. And now it's just her and her two sons. Verse 4, these two sons have taken Moabite wives. All right? Everybody with, with their good uh, memorization of Deuteronomy knows that Deuteronomy 7, you can't, so you can't do that. You can't take Moabite, Moabite, Moabite wives. But then the crushing blow for Naomi, whom this story is about, is her son is that her, both her sons die in the next verse. Which in that day and age would be Naomi's livelihood and her security to have both her husband and her children, her men, her sons die. We are told they lived there about 10 years. And by verse 5, this road to Moab has quite literally been a road to nowhere. Tragedy and hardship, as we all know, Right? They never send us texts or emails asking, is today a good day? Right? That's not how we experience life, is it? It just shows up. And often in the areas of our lives that seem to have the most promise, right? We were just going to Moab to ride out this famine, right? to seek food for our family, to give them opportunity. But one decision, as we read, leads to another. And the next thing you know, 10 years have gone by. Who would have thought this is where they would be now? A dead husband, two dead sons, and a woman all alone in a time when chaos and unspeakable things happened to the vulnerable and the weak. If there were a face to tragedy, Naomi would be that face. And like all of us at times, Naomi now is wondering, what now? What does God have for me now? And it's here that we experience the challenge of trusting God. Simply put, it is hard to trust him when life falls apart. We can look back and we can say all kinds of things about what Naomi did or didn't do. Why why did you even go to Moab in the first place? Maybe she didn't have a choice. Why didn't you return after your husband died? Why didn't you bring your sons back? Why did you stay 10 years? Why did you let your sons marry Moabite, Moabite women? But what good does that do now? In the midst of tragedy, as we'll see, the author of Ruth isn't concerned with the things Naomi should have done at this point. The author is concerned with how God is at work when your world seems to crumble and you can't see any hope beyond your circumstances. As Naomi will see, Difficult circumstances often reveal God's presence to be closer to us than we ever thought, even when we can't see it. But that's so easy to believe from our perspective when things are going well and when nothing seems to get in the way of our plans, right? Which is why our circumstances are never an accurate indicator of God's work in our lives, are they? 
my life, my story can actually be going along fine. But I might also be further from God in one sense than ever. And we might think of the prodigal son in Luke 15. When we enter into relationship with God, though, he, what, he attaches our lives to his story. His story of redemption. And it is from there that we gain a healthy bearing and a healthy confidence in the midst of tragedy such that Naomi is experiencing at this point in time. But we often forget the bigger picture that we are a part of as God's children in that moment. For Naomi, in this moment, what would getting a glimpse of that bigger picture be? It would be for her to lift her head above the wreckage, if possible, and remember what God's faithfulness to rescue his people from Egypt, which for Israel is the bigger story of redemption going on throughout their lives that they are a part of. For, for her to look at that possibly, to say, surely a God who is faithful to do that must still be in control and must still be trustworthy despite what my circumstances are telling me now and despite what I have or haven't done. He is faithful. But the same, and the same is true, sorry, for us when we suffer and experience the emptiness of life in a fallen world. We don't become ruled by our circumstances. We remind ourselves of the, what the ruler of those circumstances and the story we are now a part of. For Naomi, that would look like remembering the exodus, as we just said, in Egypt. But for us today, what it looks like sitting at the cross. The cross is the bigger story that we are a part of that tells us what is true regardless of what is going on around us. Regardless of what we see and what we cannot see. That is the story that tells us that we can trust God when life seems to be falling apart because the cross is God's promise that he hasn't forgotten us and he never will. But that's not where Naomi is here. And that might not be where you are this morning. That's not where Naomi is as Act 1 comes to a close. It is easy for us to say that when, you're, when you are not in the thick of it, it is easiest, easy for us to say, when things are going well, when you can see in some senses. <clears throat> but Naomi is empty. She is left with very little hope and a whole lot of uncertainty as she contemplates what is next for me. This is act one. This is the challenge we all face when <clears throat> we are trying to trust God when life seems to be falling around, falling down around us. Let's move now to act two, the dilemma we face in trusting God. What I want us to see about the dilemma in trusting God, and this will be the, the longest point in a, in a short third point, by the way, is that trusting God <clears throat> often feels like making a terrible situation worse. And I think it's important for us to be honest about that. It doesn't, doesn't always feel that way, but oftentimes it can because it can feel like death in the moment. Some of you all know that I, before I went to seminary, I was involved with uh, college ministry, and this particular college ministry at the University of Tennessee uh, was targeted towards Greek students, and so we would, you know, have Bible studies in fraternity houses and that kind of thing. And I remember very clearly this one kid who came in as a freshman, like all freshmen uh, at Tennessee, we'll say, um, who joined a fraternity and is loving life, loving their new freedoms. And, but they're coming to the Bible study, and they're really starting to kind of take an interest and grow, and you're, you're having some good conversations, and, and you're wondering what the Lord's doing in this person's life, and it's exciting. And, and towards the end of that fall, this person 
came, comes in and says, I decided to become a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus. And you're thinking, this is awesome. This is great. And so one thing led to another, and he wanted to get more involved with our leadership team and you know, go into his fraternity house and lead Bible studies. And so in order to do that, that, that kind of required you know, a little more responsibility. And so we met with, with him, and we just said, hey, listen, we'd love for you to, to come be a part of our team to go do this. So here's what this means. Um, amongst other things, it means you, you can't drink anymore. Um, you know, one, it's against the law. Uh, Tennessee is a dry campus. Two, he was underage. So it's against the law again. <laughs> uh, but three, this was not just, this was a huge problem on, on Tennessee's campus along in the way that it is on many campuses. And it just makes a lot of good sense to minister when you're ministering to students that struggle with this, to not do it. But what I, why I tell a story is because when we mentioned this to him, his, like, he just died inside. <laughs> he was lost. His, his face was expressionless and just sort of didn't really know where he was or, or what to do at this moment. He couldn't even consider or think about what it would be like to give that up. And we can laugh about that now, right, a little bit. But when you're a freshman in college... Asking someone to take their beer away can seem like death in some ways. But if you really want to know it, like, if we're really honest, what, what it is, is it's not the beer. What, it's, it's the freedom that's being taken. And that's what really gets us. Right? To him, giving up drinking as a freshman, it, 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 is, it is a loss of that freedom uh, that, that, that he, he's promised. Right? This, is his, this is his time. This is what he's supposed to do. Um, but this is often what it feels like when we're called to follow Jesus, isn't it? Right? We give up our lives. We take up our cross, right? all relative here, <laughs> to follow him. And in that moment, making a decision to trust Jesus and giving something up for him often feels like making a tough situation worse. Because there is no trusting God, and this is the point that I want you to, to hear. There's no trusting God without turning your back in some way, in some form, on what you think is best. Trusting God is a form of repentance. And that we are dying to something in us that says, this would be better for me instead of obeying and following God. And in that way, when we make those decisions to trust Jesus in difficult situations, it very well can often feel like making a tough situation worse. And we see that in this next scene with Orpah and Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-laws, who are forced with an extremely difficult decision as Naomi returns home. And being honest about what that decision feels like and doesn't feel like is important as we navigate life following Jesus as well. So the curtain rises in Act 2, and a new day in the land of promise arrives. Right? Naomi hears that the Lord has visited his people and has given them food. So she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from Moab to Bethlehem. The word return here, we need to stop for a second, is a key phrase in the book of Ruth that you need to take notice of. Uh, you hear this word 12 times, though it is disguised in your English translation. You'll hear it uh, translated as take them back, go back, brought me back. All those are the same. In other contexts, according to Christopher Ashe, this word means the same as repent. It indicates a change of mind and heart. So as Naomi sets off to return, to go back home, we are to associate that with a type of or kind of repentance. How heartfelt is this repentance? We're not sure at this point. Perhaps at first, Naomi is much like the prodigal son who has gone off to the far country. 
and decides to return home once all that he has is gone. Regardless, though, she is returning home, which is an act of trusting God. But she's returning home empty. And on top of that, she has with her her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And this just sort of compounds the problems Naomi is experiencing as she sets off to return home to Bethlehem. In verses 8 to 14, which we read, we, we meet these three widows in the middle of nowhere between Moab and Bethlehem. Moab is to their backs, Bethlehem to their front. To their front but, but along the way, Naomi realizes that her daughter-in-laws must turn back for Moab. But there are consequences that we will soon see for both of these decisions. If Orpah and Ruth go with Naomi to live in the land of Judah, right, the land of promise, this would mean a death to a life that they could probably have if they return to Moab. And somehow, though we can never truly uh, relate to what they are experiencing, you have to figure out a way to relate to that. What this means for them is that they go, is that if they go with Naomi, they probably won't get married in Jerusalem or Judea, which in that day for women was security and livelihood, and thus wouldn't have children, which in that day for women was value and worth. See, in this day and age, that's about all women could hope for. And Naomi realizes that, and she begs them to return to Moab. Now, it is possible that, that Naomi doesn't want to bring the Moabite women home with her as a testimony to her unfaithfulness over the past 10 years, but we're not sure. But what is certain is the decision for Naomi, for Orpah, and for Ruth is a very difficult one. One that makes a terrible situation that they are already in feel worse. By verse 14, though, Orpah decides to go back to Moab. And we are not to blame her for this. We don't know what happens to her from here on out. And that's what she, but this is what she does. As many commentators point out, she bases her decision on what she can see. Much like Elimelech and Naomi in the beginning, who made the decision to leave Bethlehem for greener pastures in Moab. But like them, Orpah looks at her decision in the face and she chooses what appears to be the best decision for her at that time. You might say she was ruled by her circumstances. Upon Orpah's decision, we read verse 14, which says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, meaning kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to her, clung to Naomi. So Orpah goes back, but we read that Ruth stays. And this is the turning point in this whole story. And in the midst of Naomi, again, pleading for Ruth to go back with with her sister-in-law, Ruth tells Naomi this in verse 16. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Right? So we weep over those words. Right? If you've heard those before at a wedding, you probably have. We weep over those. But notice that Naomi says nothing. Not even a thank you. Why? 
Because it's a testimony to her bitterness that is settling in, which we will return to later. But Ruth here is doing something almost unheard of. And this takes the spotlight for the remainder of this act. She is fundamentally, friends, changing her identity with these words, which is unheard of in that day and age. Once a Moabite, always a Moabite. She is renouncing her identity as a Moabite and all that comes with it, and she is committing her life to Naomi, her mother-in-law. As Dean Ulrich writes, Ruth committed herself to a disillusioned older woman who probably had nothing. But friends, her commitment to Naomi is an expression of her faith in God. Most commentaries call this a conversion for Ruth. She is embracing Naomi's God and his people. It is, in every sense of the word, a full return. But what's the cost for Ruth to do this? It's everything. It is a death to everything that she would have thought of would have possibly been better for her in her life, for everything that she could have maybe have hoped for as a Moabite woman. That is the cost for her to do this. And in so doing, friends, her decision to trust God in this way feels like making a tough situation worse. She has got to be wondering as she sets off for Bethlehem, what now? What will happen when I get to Judah? Will, Will they accept me? Where will I live? Where will I eat? Am I really saying no to a somewhat normal life that would await me back in Moab? Ruth has no answers for these questions at this moment. She has given up her entire life for her mother-in-law. None of us are doing that. Some of us might be. Right? Joe, we can laugh at that. She is saying that my life is essentially united to Naomi's until death, which means she no longer belongs to herself She has given up, friends, everything that we would call freedom. And this decision feels like death because for Ruth, that is exactly what it is. And it is unheard of in that day and age. In contrast to Orpah, Ruth is saying, I give up my life for someone else. Look, I'm supposed to do that in my marriage, right? I made vows about that. But I fail to do that all the time. Why? I want my freedom. I don't want to be in covenantal relationship with someone. I do, but you know what I mean. Our hearts don't. As a good friend says to me, I still think autonomous Ryan exists. I don't have a category for what Ruth is doing. Nobody does. That's why it's so shocking. We think we can follow Jesus and carve out our own lives over here on the side. But this is where Ruth stands in such contrast to our world and culture today. Not so much in how we navigate life, but in what we value. And what we value is our freedom to do what we want, to make our own choices, and to set our own course. We will take and accept hardship in life as long as we have our freedom. It's called hard work. But Ruth gives up her freedom for hardship, for someone else. 
her mother-in-law. She leaves her life for Naomi because that's what covenantal love looks like. And that's what Jesus ultimately does for us. Don't miss this. this, Here's Jesus right here in the Old Testament. Ruth is preparing the way for the one to come who will what? Ultimately give everything up and become nothing so that we might have life. But as Ruth does this, and don't miss this either, it can feel like making a difficult situation worse. Because that's what dying to ourselves for the sake of someone else initially feels like. Our consumer minds are trained to look for the payoff. If I do this, I better get X back in return. But that is not the gospel, is it? The gospel comes to us and it says, I can do this. I can give up my life. I can die for somebody else because I have Jesus. Because he's done the same for me. Not if the payoff is worth it. This is what Ruth has signed up for. And it in no way promises a return in this life. And the same is true for you and me this morning. We wear that. As we come through these doors on Sunday morning. As the two of them head for Bethlehem, I'm sure Ruth is wondering, what did I just do? Am I making the right decision? Because my feelings, my circumstances, where I find myself, it is telling me something different. But yet she presses on, which brings me to the final point and sort of a conclusion for us this morning Act 3, the resolution that we often are left with after trusting God. And that is this. Though our circumstances don't seem to get better, God is at work even when we can't see him, right? That's the resolution. A lot of us make decisions to trust Jesus, and we expect that that decision to trust him will immediately be granted with, with, that, that, that faithfulness will be immediately granted with blessing. And I think what's so good about this story is that we don't see that immediately. And we're not even promised it. Let's wrap up chapter 1. It ends as Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem. We read that Naomi is bitter. Here she is making a good decision for, for God. But he has still left her bitter. People notice Naomi and they ask, is this Naomi? Notice, they don't notice or say a word about the Moabite standing next to her. And what is Naomi's response at verse 20? Look at it. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara or bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. There's a part of us that wants to believe, as I said, that God rewards faithfulness immediately. That as soon as Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, it is the prodigal's return. We're going we're gonna to kill the fatted calf and have this celebration. The curtain drops and we walk away from the story feeling good about ourselves. But that is not the case here. We have many more questions. We are longing to know what is going to happen to them. If we are honest, nothing seems to have changed for them. Nothing seems to have gotten better for them as they arrive into the land of promise. 
But chapter 1 does leave us with hope. And sometimes, friends, that is the only thing that we have. And the hope here is that though our circumstances have not changed, God is at work, friends, even when we can't see it. In beautiful narrative style, the chapter ends with a clue that points the way for us. Right there in the very last verse of chapter 1, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Did you catch it? The story started out with a famine, but it ends with harvest. God is at work in the lives of Naomi and in the lives of Ruth. Amen. Is that it? Is, is the God of Naomi and Ruth just a God of the seasons? Who, if we behave properly, if we get our act together and come back to him, right, then he will bring us good fortune. Is that who God is? No. He's not only the God of the seasons, friends, transcending all things. He is the imminent God, the personal God who comes to be with his people in the midst of of their suffering and yours today as well. Look back with me one last time in verse 14, and this is where we'll end. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, what? Clung to her. The word clung to her, it is the same in Genesis 2, when the man is called to leave his family and hold fast to his wife. What is that word? It is covenantal language, friends. It is covenantal faithfulness. And though Naomi can't see it in her bitterness and loss, God is at work in giving Naomi Ruth as a tangible reminder of his own faithfulness to his people. He's right there. Telling them that I'm always with you. That I will never leave you, nor will I let you go. The problem is, Naomi just can't see it. But isn't that the good news that we need to hear this morning? That though we are unaware of it, that though it feels like God is not at work in my life, he is right there clinging to me in ways that I cannot see, though someday, one day I might. That he's there, that he's present, that he's with me when I sense his presence and when I see his work and even when I don't. As Ada pointed out, to me, as we were talking about it this week, God isn't just with us even when we can't see it. God is with us even in our bitterness. All right? Naomi is a far cry away from, from, from some type of real repentance and joy that, that, that God loves her. She shows up bitter, renouncing her name. Does that change what God does for her? How he loves her? How he connects himself to her. No. It's amazing. And it's hope for us as we deal with our own circumstances. Because that is what covenantal love looks like. That is the covenantal love of God. He is with you for better or for worse, friends. When you can't see it and when you don't deserve it, how do we know? And we see this ultimately with Jesus, don't we? Right? If there was ever a moment in history where God was at work but no one could see it, was it not Calvary? When the Son of God was, was killed? Yet what seemed like utter failure and loss was victory for people who didn't deserve it. In the midst of famine, friends, there's a harvest. 
That's what we see here on the pages of Ruth and what we see ultimately on the cross of Jesus. That is how good our God is to us. That's the covenantal love of, of God. He has given himself to us. He clings to us. He unites himself to us. And he promises to never leave us. And none of that depends on our attitudes towards him or what our circumstances tell us. Because he has committed himself to us. And though our trust in God and our commitment to follow him can often make and allow tough situations feel worse, he is at work. When we see it, when we experience his presence, but certainly when we do not. Just like Naomi. The barley harvest has begun. This is the book of Ruth. We'll look at chapter 2 next week. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would jar us loose of our indifference, of our cynicism, of... Of, of too, being too long in the midst of circumstances that are telling us that you are not at work in our lives. And would you, for this day, for this week, just hold up this picture of Naomi and Ruth for us. That even in the midst of what we see happening here, of such tragic loss, of not being able to see any hope, you are there, you're right in the middle. You have not left her. And that promise extends to us today because of Jesus. We thank you for that, and we ask you to make that reality more real to us, more beautiful and believable, as we come to your table now and take from what is ultimately the best picture we have of your love and commitment to us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.